Walters shows every NFL game every week. They preset all indoor TVs and seat on a first-come, first-served basis with over 30 TVs inside and outside. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One ball and one strike to count. Right-hander to the belt, third base side of the slam. He kicks, he delivers. Swing a line drive, left field. Jake Alou is there, backing up a couple of steps. He makes the catch. And bang, Zuma, Curly W's in the books. And so is a series win in Atlanta on the final road trip of the year. Two balls, two strikes. Spores kicks and fires. He struck him out looking. It's over. It's over. The Rangers have won the World Series. Ranger fans, you're not dreaming. The Rangers are the World Series champions. After 52 years in Texas, 63 years of the franchise, the wait is over. For the Senators, leading off and playing center field will be Elliott Maddox. Batting second and playing shortstop, Toby Harrah. Batting third and playing first base, Frank Howard. And welcome to Nats Chat for Tuesday, November 7th, 2023. We are here. We are back. The first of the offseason installments of the podcast for the Nationals 2023-2024 offseason, along with Nats insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We have a lot to discuss. It has been a while. Big change to the Nats front office. Big change to the Nats coaching staff. Big change to the usual start time for Nats weekday home games from 7.05 p.m. to now 6.45 p.m. Coming up later in the show, a conversation that our own Tim Schofers had with the great Frank Howard, the former Washington Senators outfielder and first baseman who sadly passed away last week. Uh, Tim spoke with Frank in November 2019. We, at the end of the show, are going to play a clip from that conversation. But Mark, first time that we have spoken since the wildly successful second annual Nats Chat podcast party, which took place at Walters on October 13th. Great turnout. It was outstanding to see and speak with everyone. Have you recovered yet from the party or are you more on the uh, Anthony Rendon timeline for recovery? Yeah, I'm on the Rendon timeline. I think it's still day to day, but not entirely sure that could stretch to week to week because That took a lot out of me. I don't know about you. That took a lot out of me. And once again, as we saw last year, the best sign of how successful it was is that it was like 90 minutes in before the two of us even spoke to each other. 
And that wasn't by design. It's not because we dislike each other. We actually do like each other. But we were so consumed and in a good way with talking to our listeners who showed up there in droves that we finally got to the point that I said, hang on, I haven't even said hello to Al yet, who was on the other side of the room. So that to me is the ultimate sign of how successful this party was. There was tension between us that night because your Pittsburgh Penguins smashed my Washington Capitals <laughs> in their regular season home opener for nothing. And then a few weeks later, my Maryland Terrapins got worked by your Northwestern Wildcats. So it has not been a good last few weeks for my teams when it comes to them facing your teams. But uh, the less said about all of that, the better. So yeah, man, a lot of ground to cover, a lot to get into here. Good to be with you. Good to be back with everybody else here. You know, I guess, you know, we have this news that came out on Monday morning and it may sound kind of silly, but this is the kind of thing that impacts a lot of people. The Nationals on Monday morning announcing a new usual start time for weekday home games at Nationals Park for this coming season, 6.45 p.m. as opposed to 7.05 p.m., which of course had been the uh, usual start time for weekday home games at Nationals Park for years. To this, I say bravo. I think this is smart. I think this is going to be good for not everyone, but I think for a good number of people. Look, there is no such thing as like a perfect start time that uh, generates universal approval. But where do you think this came from in terms of why the Nats are doing this? So I had heard about this at the end of the year as something they were considering, and even maybe as early as 6.35. And I guess they settled in the end on somewhere in between at 6.45. And the thought process is this. Let's be honest, their attendance, while not as bad as I thought it would be this past year, was down. We understand all the reasons why that is. It's nobody's fault. It's certainly not the fault of fans that they didn't turn out the same way that they did when the team was consistently trying to contend and win. But it is a fact. So if you're the Nationals, you are trying to find more ways to get more fans into the ballpark. And I think we have certainly seen, even in good years, that weeknights, especially when school is in session, are the hardest nights to draw. Monday nights, Tuesday nights in April, May, and again in September, those are the toughest nights to get fans to come out. So what can you do? I think the biggest issue that they see and the, the thing that they want to try to rectify is if you have a family and you want to go to a game on a weeknight, it's hard to do that if you're not getting out of the park until 10 p.m. or later. So when you take what we saw this last year with the shorter game times because of the pitch clock, where the average game time was about two and a half hours, that's moving up the end time of a game already. And now if you just take 20 minutes, that's all it is. It sounds like a lot. It's really just 20 minutes from 7.05 to 6.45. You're now looking at games that should routinely end. A fast game should end about nine o'clock. And even a long game might end around 9.30. And if that in turn convinces more families to come out to weeknight games, or even adults who have jobs and have to be up in the morning, I think they look at that as a worthwhile endeavor. Now, there are downsides to it. I've already heard it from some fans, people who do work later, people who fight traffic to get into the city, and it's hard enough to get there for a 7.05 start. It's going to be a lot harder at 6.45. I think what you're going to see from the Nationals is that the hope would be is that if there are fewer fans there at the start of the game, they can live with that if it means there are more fans there at the end of the game. We know people leave early for a variety of reasons. Maybe this helps keep people there closer to the end of the game, if not the end of the game, if all of a sudden the end of the game is now at 9.15 on a regular basis. I mean, you got to think the Nats 
put a lot of research into this. Like you don't just willy nilly decide to do something like this. Like there probably was a lot of data that was assessed in arriving at a new start time. I mean, the concern with 645 over 705, like you said, is that you're making it harder for people to get from work to the game or to get from work to home to the game. But I think an important thing to remember is the work paradigm in this country has changed dramatically. And so many people now work from home. So many people now have work schedules that are not the traditional Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Now, plenty of people still have that, but many people don't. You know, things are different. And I think one of the really telling things is looking around Major League Baseball, a lot of teams now are going with regular start times for weekday home games in the 6 p.m. hour. And not just like tiny markets, Philadelphia, regular start times for weekday home games in the 6 p.m. hour. So I think it's worth a shot. I mean, if it's a complete debacle, you can always go back to 7.05, but I don't think that this is going to be a debacle. Things have really altered. I mean, I can just speak from my world. You know, for years in radio, there was this thing of like morning drive and afternoon drive, those time slots, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. and like 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. were like precious because that's when everyone's in their cars and that's when people are most likely to be listening to the radio. That's not the case anymore. The radio business has changed in that regard, and that's not to say that those time slots aren't still looked at as being important, but they don't have the importance that they used to. Things are very different now. It's one of the things that has really impacted the radio business in recent years. So a lot of stuff is different. You know, obviously, COVID triggered a lot of this, but, you know, I think there's been kind of an awakening of, like, you don't have to work nine to five in an office. Like, there are a lot of different ways to do this. And so I wonder if that maybe makes this something that works for more people than this doesn't work for. And again, you're never going to please everybody. Like there will be people who are majorly inconvenienced by this, but I think there are going to be a good number of people who benefit from this, who like this. Let's not kid ourselves. The real prime radio time when the most people are listening and the stars are paid the most is the 5 a.m. Al Galdi hour. We know that from your history. That's the slot that everybody wants and only Al Galdi gets that slot. So just make that point. Yeah, I agree. I think you also, you're going to look at the short term and what does it mean for attendance this year, but you have to think bigger picture. And so much of what baseball across the industry is trying to do is to increase fandom and viewership over a long haul. If this helps get more young people into a ballpark on a more regular basis, that makes them fans for life and they will continue to support the team for years to come. There's a whole other subject we can get to here about that, but I think that has to be tied in with it as well, that there really across the entire industry, I think, has been more of a concerted effort the last couple of years to try to figure out how do we reach more young people and just more people in general to make them fans of baseball who want to watch games on TV and want to come in person more often to see them. And I think this is one potential step towards that. It's not perfect. There are people who are going to be negatively impacted by it, but I think the sense would be that it ultimately leads to more positive results than negative results. And it's why I, you know, if the Nationals' attendance next season, there's a whole lot of factors that go into that. But if their attendance goes down, I don't think it will necessarily be fair to say, oh, well, see, the earlier start times didn't work. They got to go back to 705. I think you do have to look at the bigger picture and try to break down who is attending the games and what does that mean long-term and not just in the immediate season. So the last installment of this podcast came out in the late night hours of October 1st. The installment was for October 2nd. Since then, a whole lot has happened when it comes to 
Nationals baseball operations. So as you may recall, when we last left you on the saga, the soap opera that is the Nats Tad podcast, well, Mike Rizzo had been extended, Davey Martinez had been extended, and we knew that two key guys under Mike Rizzo had been ousted in various ways, talking about the Nats' longtime international scouting director, Johnny DePuglia, and the Nats' assistant general manager and vice president of scouting operations, Chris Klein. Well, Shortly after the end of the Nats season, we learned that Dijon Watson was out. He would not be returning as the team's director of player development. And over the last few weeks, we've had this sort of death by a thousand paper cuts in terms of reports of who's coming in and what's going to be happening. The Nats on October 25th officially announced multiple hirings, including those of Danny Haas and Brad Sielek. Danny Haas hired as vice president of amateur scouting. He spent the last five seasons as a special assignment scout for the Arizona Diamondbacks, so working in amateur and international amateur scouting. Haas worked for the Orioles in a variety of scouting roles December 2011 through the 2018 season. And this guy, Brad Selak, I think is a fascinating hire. I'm most excited about this hire. Senior director of amateur scouting is his title with the Nats. The Nats plucked Selak from the Orioles. He was the Orioles director of draft operations November 2021 to October 2023. He had been with the O's in a uh, variety of scouting capacities since January 2013, and that followed a previous stint with the O's February 2011 to November 2011. So when you talk about the O's having this abundance of riches in their farm system and also at the major league level in terms of young players, Selec has been a part of that. Maybe not the primary reason for that, but a part of that. Then, The Nats this past Friday afternoon officially announced the promotion of Eddie Longos to vice president and assistant general manager of player development and administration. Longos, previous eight years, was the Nats director of scouting operations. So this is an internal hire. He joined the Nats all the way back in 2010, has been working his way up. There is a lot to take in with these hirings, what they mean I think a lot of people probably are confused about what exactly they mean. Are these good hirings? Are they bad hirings? Look, there's a lot that we don't know. But from where you sit, what are kind of your general takeaways from this major revamping of Nats baseball ops beneath Mike Rizzo? Again, Rizzo extended, but just about everything beneath him has been altered. Right. And I think that's a very key point there is that you are seeing a very different looking front office from what we've seen here in the past. There are a bunch of, and we didn't even name them all, a bunch of longtime baseball people, scouts, special assistants, farm directors, people who have worked closely with Mike Rizzo for a long time in some cases, or have worked in baseball for a long time, who are no longer with them. And the replacements there so far have been a couple of outside hires. You just mentioned the two on the scouting side that essentially replace Chris Klein who is staying in the organization, but in a different role. And then by all accounts, I believe that Brad Siolek is a new position that has not existed before. And this is going to be maybe more of an analytics position as it pertains to scouting. We can get into all that. So that's significant. But so far, at least, everything else that we are aware of has been hiring from within, promoting from within to fill different positions. So such as Eddie Longos has been with them for a long time now taking D. John Watson's position in charge of the minor league. He's essentially their farm director now. And even on the international side, with Johnny DePuglia gone, Fausto Severino, who was his number two guy for a long time, has taken over. So in some ways, I think it's interesting to note that 
the scouting side, the amateur scouting side, they've gone outside and it seems like a pretty big departure from what they have done in the past. Whereas international scouting and player development, so the minor leagues, they are sticking with people who have already been there and putting them into new roles. And in the case of Eddie Longos, who I've known and, and has done a great job and really worked his way up the ladder in his time at the organization, this is a whole new department for him. He has been on the scouting side, not necessarily as a, a guy they send out to go look at this high schooler in Arkansas and scout him, but as somebody who has organized a lot of the scouting operation, he's now in charge of the minor league system in a very important, significant role. This is a totally different area than his background is in. And D. John Watson, who held that job, was a longtime scout, a baseball person, you'd want to call that, a, a talent evaluator. And now you have somebody who doesn't fit that same description overseeing the department. I'm not saying at all that's a bad thing, and this could lead to a very different approach to it. But I do think it's notable how, for the most part, they've been moving pieces around within the organization and putting people into different roles. And above all else, we still have to see what else happens until we can make this definitive declaration. But it feels to me like so far, there have been a number of veteran Longtime baseball people who I would imagine made a little more money than the average person who works in baseball out and people replacing them from within who are getting promotions and are younger and probably do not cost as much. And in some cases, when it comes to all the special assistants and other people on that side of the equation may not be replaced at all. So I do think there is something of a financial component to this. We hinted at this at the end of the season with some of the moves that were starting to be made. It feels like Mike Rizzo was told, you're staying, but we need you to trim some fat, cut down on some costs, and revamp a lot of how your front office operates. Yeah. So I think there's a lot here that is, if not concerning, then at the very least worth questioning. You start with what you just said. If money is the primary motivator for who is being hired, that's a problem because if you're trying to build a great front office, a great baseball ops department, especially off all of the baseball ops struggles for this franchise in recent years in terms of drafting and player development, going on the cheap is uh, not the way to go. Not with the arms race of data and information that's going on in MLB right now. So that immediately comes to my mind. There also still is this thing, we talked about this late in the season, but boy, it is bizarre. You're revamping baseball ops in a pretty clear indictment of what your baseball ops have done, and yet you're keeping the man who has presided over your baseball ops for years. Like, that's strange. That's bizarre. That's almost never the way that this stuff goes. If you think that little of what the Nats baseball ops department has done over the last, you know, five, ten years, whatever it is, then why are you keeping the guy who has presided over those baseball ops for these last five, ten years? Like, that to me is strange. And that's not to say that Mike Rizzo absolutely had to be fired. But again, if you're the learners and this is what you think, then why did you extend Mike Rizzo? Like that to me is just so strange that that's the way that this ended up going. But there's another aspect of this too. You know, we've heard about, well, the rebuild, right? Oh, the rebuild's going pretty well. You know, we have this guy, we have that guy, we feel better about things. And yet you're revamping <laughs> your drafting and scouting and player development department in the midst of the rebuild. That is so not the way you're supposed to do this, right? When you enter into a rebuild is when you revamp those things. You're now multiple years into the rebuild. Some big decisions have been made in this rebuild. And you're saying that the people who have been involved in these decisions 
aren't worth keeping around? I mean, I think about Dejon Watson, right? It was in November 2021 that the Nats promoted Watson to director of player development, okay? He'd been with the team since January 2017 as one of about a million special assistants to Mike Rizzo. So you made this promotion of Dejon Watson, November 2021, right? So you're literally months into your rebuild, such a crucial time in the timeline for the Nats. And it turns out that you made a mistake, that this guy's gone within two years? Like, what does that say? So, you know, look, like I said, I think the hiring of this guy, Brad Selek, is good. We'll see about Eddie Longo's and Danny Haas and, you know, others. But man, I don't, I mean, if you're looking at this thing objectively, I don't know how you're not asking some of these questions here. This is not normal. This is not the way that a proper rebuild usually goes. Doesn't mean that this isn't going to work, but boy, this is unconventional. Unconventional is the word I was about to use. As you said, typically an organization, once they got to that point in 2021 and even 2022, where they said, we're stripping this down, we're starting over, we are no longer the nationals that competed for the World Series, we are going in a whole new direction and thinking long-term over short-term, that would typically be the time that you clean house and start fresh at all levels of the front office, the manager's office, the coaching staff, and we haven't even gotten to any of those moves yet. And instead, they stuck with the people in charge and some of the people in prominent positions for a couple of years. And now, as you said, in the midst of that, you're making some significant changes. I mean, think about it this way. If Dylan Cruz and Brady House and Elijah Green end up becoming stars, they were drafted by Chris Klein who is no longer in charge of amateur scouting and the draft. And there's an entirely new team in charge of that starting this year. The results of which, by the way, we won't be able to evaluate them for many years to come until we know how Danny Haas and Brad Siolek and everybody else on the scouting side has done because you have to draft players and then develop them and find out if they become big leaguers or not. So it's quite possible that in a, in a honestly best case scenario from the national standpoint, that by a year from now, they look like they're on the cusp of being a contending team again. And they're doing so with players who were drafted by a previous regime and developed through the minor leagues, at least through part of that time, by somebody else in charge of that operation. It is fascinating because like you said, this is just unconventional manner of going about it. It may work. It may not be the issue, but it's not the way you would typically say this. You either say, Two years ago, you clean house and start all over, or once you've committed to this, you stick with it and give all these guys a chance to see if the fruits of their labor actually work out. And instead, we're in the middle of the process. We don't know the answer yet. Will it work out? And they've already made changes. Help me understand the org chart here. So Danny Haas is vice president of amateur scouting. Brad Sielek is senior director of amateur scouting. Is Danny ahead of Brad or is Brad ahead of Danny? Danny Haas is in charge of the whole amateur scouting operation. He replaces Chris Klein in that position. Brad Selek works for him now, but I do think that is a new position, the best I understand it. I don't know if there are other changes below them in terms of assistant scouting directors and the national cross checkers, all those people who essentially report to the director of scouting when it comes time in the months leading up to the draft. So Brad Selek is a new position who falls underneath Danny Haas. And I think, and I I do think it's one of the more significant ones of this, as you mentioned, this is a guy with more analytics background, I think who's going to maybe revamp the way that they evaluate amateur players leading up to the draft, not just 
talent that they see on the field, but numbers and trying to figure out what types of players they want and who fits certain descriptions of what they're looking for. Danny Haas spent the last five seasons, like I said, as a special assignment scout for the Diamondbacks. Sealek spent his most recent years working for the Orioles as their director of draft operations and clearly being a part of something that is working quite well. Shouldn't Sealek be ahead of Haas? Like, shouldn't Sealek be the one in charge of drafting or, or am I missing something here? Unfortunately, while there is some uniformity among different major league franchises as far as titles go, it's not across the board. And I think a lot of it has to do with salary structure. And if you're a director or a VP or an assistant GM or whatever else, it has to do with what your salary is. And so it may sound like Selick was ahead of Haas previously, but what I've been told here is that Haas is in charge of the operation. Now, maybe it's a bigger promotion for him a bigger step up than it is for Sealek, but Haas is now in charge of their amateur scouting in terms of the draft, and Sealek will work for him. Hey, are you a law firm partner or an associate stuck on an underperforming franchise? Do what Nationals legend Max Scherzer did. Demand a trade. He left the New York Mets, right? And uh, ended up on a contender in the American League. There might be greener pastures and a lot more money at another law firm for you and your team at another law firm, not to mention better management and better services to offer your clients. The law firm lateral partner market is still red hot, and Nats Chat sponsor Mason Kalfas is the best legal recruiter in Washington, D.C., or anywhere. And Mason wants to help you find a new and better home. Mason Kalfas, he is the Scott Boris of legal recruiters. Put him to work for you. Mason will sit down with you and understand your practice and career or financial goals. He will confidentially discuss your candidacy with law firms that are contenders, not 60 win teams. You can reach Mason or any of his team of seven recruiters at 202-486-3535 or email Mason at mason at zenith legal.com. That's 202-486-3535 or via email at mason at zenithlegal.com. Go Nats! Uh, The Nats will be contenders very soon and you can be a contender even sooner. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the set. Big lead. There he goes. Huge jump. 
The pitch, a strike, the throw on down, and the tag. Safe is the call. Albies taking the throw. Again, falling down with contact on the tag with Abrams. And that's stolen base number 47. And he has set a new single-season record for stolen bases for a national since they moved from Montreal to become the Nationals in 2005. So we have all of that with the Nats front office. And then we have what has been happening with Davey Martinez's coaching staff. So like I said, Davey extended. We found out about that a good bit of time ago. August 22nd, in fact, was when the Nats announced having agreed with Davey on a multi-year contract extension. It was over the course of two days, October 9th and the 10th, that we had multiple reports that the Nats were retaining pitching coach Jim Hickey and retaining hitting coach Darnell Coles, but were parting with a bunch of other coaches. Bench coach Tim Bogar, first base coach Eric Young Jr., third base coach Gary DeSarcina, and assistant hitting coach Pat Rossler. We then on Halloween had reports that the Nats were reassigning Gerardo Parra to be their new first base coach and were reassigning Ricky Gutierrez to be their new third base coach. Before we get to some of the specifics here, I think the thing that stood out to most people was Darnell Coles being retained. I think Jim Hickey, I know people complain about Hickey, but you know, there is, I think, a pretty reasonable argument for retaining Hickey given what we've seen from the likes of Josiah Gray and Jake Irvin and Mackenzie Gore. What do you think the organizational thinking is in keeping Darnell Coles? That one was more surprising to me. I thought that was 50-50, maybe even more than 50-50 that that he could be let go because we outlined at the end of the season, throughout the season, what their offensive deficiencies were. But I do think there was some feeling of some progress being made there and that their biggest issue, they didn't hit for power. I think they're maybe saying that's more a product of who they have as opposed to who's teaching them or what kind of approach they're trying to take at the plate. I think we knew going into the year, even if Kevin Long is your hitting coach, this wasn't the team that was built to hit a lot of home runs. So you can launch angle all you want, but if you don't have the horses to do it, it's not going to happen. Now, Joey Manessis dropped a lot. That was probably the biggest disappointment in that regard in the power department. But you saw Lane Thomas do better from the power department. You saw CJ Abrams hit for power, Cabert Ruiz hit for power. So I think the feeling there was that they cut down on their strikeouts a lot. They were a good contact team. There was some progress from guys near the end of the year that you could say, okay, this guy's gotten better as a hitter. And so we want to stick with that. Now, I think the fascinating thing is it means Darnell Coles is most likely going to be the major league hitting coach for some big time prospects that are about to hit the scene here at some point in the next year. Dylan Cruz, James Wood, and others. Showing a lot of belief in him. Now, he and Davey go way back. I don't know if all of these decisions were straight up Davey or if Mike Rizzo's involved or even ownership. Mike Rizzo said at the end of the year that Davey is in charge of his coaching staff, but with input from the front office. So you know how that sometimes goes. So that was the one most surprising to me. I felt like Hickey was most likely coming back Whatever you might think about the state of the pitching staff, again, he doesn't have Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and Patrick Corbin to work with. He has an entirely different group. And Josiah Gray's gotten better. Mackenzie Gore has shown promise. Jake Irvin showed real progress over the course of the year. Hunter Harvey, who I don't think gets mentioned enough as a success story for the organization. Even Kyle Finnegan can be, I think, put in that category. I think they do like some of the things that they've seen there. Now, the rest of the, the changes we'll get to here. 
I think there's some very fascinating things and some interesting messages being sent about the rest of the changes they've made. First base coach Eric Young Jr., we saw a lot of the base running boo-boos from the dance this past season. Gerardo Porra taking over as the new first base coach. That certainly is interesting. He had been a special assistant for the Nats. Of course, you know, wasn't a player that long ago. He's set to be the Nats' first base coach. And Ricky Gutierrez, who had the great title of Nats' run prevention coordinator, had gotten a good bit of credit for the good defensive work of shortstop C.J. Abrams. He now becomes the third base coach. What did you think about the Nats going with those two guys? Two internal promotions here, but two, I think in some ways, out-of-the-box hires for these two spots. Yeah, so I think you'd look at the changes they made so DeSarcina at third base out, Eric Young Jr. at first base out, and Tim Bogar, the bench coach out. That one surprised me because he's a very close, confident Davey. He'd been here from the beginning with Davey and by all accounts, very well respected. I think there's a common thread with those three and the two people they've replaced them with, and that's defense. Bogar and DeSarcina were in theory in charge of infield defense. Eric Young Jr. was in charge of outfield defense. And I think this is a declaration from somebody, whether that's Davey, Rizzo, somebody else, to say, we need to be better defensively. We need to coach better to make these players into better defensive players. Now, Ricky Gutierrez, who was added to the staff this last year, as you said, the run prevention coordinator, essentially was an extra infield coach in the dugout, a former big league middle infielder who worked very closely with the middle infielders especially C.J. Abrams, and got a lot of the credit for the progress that C.J. made. To me, yes, he's coaching third base, and that's a whole other issue because there are a lot of decisions that we all see in real time as a third base coach that you focus on. But I think that move is more about him now being in charge of the infield defense. And in Gerardo Parra's case, was for many years a really good defensive outfielder. And I think that more than the base running stuff is why he is there. Because when you're a base coach, you also are responsible for other things. And in this case, I believe Parra will be responsible for coaching the outfielders who across the board were not good last year. Lane Thomas had all the outfield assists, but there were so many issues with him and Robles and Alex Call with positioning, with balls that should have been caught that were not. I think Parra is being put in that spot to help in that regard. There has been no more persistent problem for the Nats than the bullpen, but number two is defense. The Nats have not been a good defensive team in a really long time. Like if you just look at defensive run saves season in, season out, it has been a long time since the Nats rated well in DRS. And I'm talking like in the latter years of the Nats as a contending team, the team did not rate well defensively. So it really has been an issue for this team getting to be good defensively. And, you know, you certainly would think that that's something that if the Nats are going to get good again, that's something that needs to be picked up on here. So again, like Rizzo extended, but everyone beneath him is uh, revamped, if it feels like. Davey Martinez extended, but massive change on his coaching staff. You just alluded to this. I do think this is a key question. These changes that we're seeing beneath Mike Rizzo and beneath Davey Martinez, are they happening against the wills of Mike and Davey? Or are there things that Mike and Davey are, in fact, in favor of here? Like, are these changes being forced on Mike and Davey? Or are these changes that Mike and Davey are in favor of? Because I think that's a big deal, right? You want organizational alignment. The last thing that you want is a guy presiding over others who the guy who's doing the presiding doesn't want, you know, or has resentment toward. Like, that's a problem if that's the case. Do you have any sense on where Mike and Davey stand on all of these changes happening beneath those guys? 
I don't. We haven't had the chance to talk to anybody you know, on the record yet, and it may be until the winter meetings a month from now before that actually happens. So I do think it'll be interesting to see what they say. Now, it's not the first time hardly that you have seen a manager retained but have to make changes to his coaching staff, including letting go of people that he's worked with for a long time. That's not that uncommon. You wish it wasn't the case, but it has happened and even happened after they won the World Series. Remember, they moved some people around into different roles right after winning a World Series. So it has happened. I don't know if this was a case of somebody saying to Davey Martinez, all right, you get to pick the three guys you want to keep, and then we got to you know make some other changes. And he decided on the ones he wanted to keep. I don't know if that's the way it worked. But I do think, again, like with the majority of the front office, so far, and there's still more positions to fill, bench coach is the biggest one, and I'm really interested to see what happens there. But so far, they have taken two people who already worked for the organization in Gerardo Parra and Ricky Gutierrez and moved them into major league coaching jobs. And as of this point, those spots have not been filled by anybody else. You know, Gerardo Parra was one of those special assistants that's not necessarily a job that just has to go to anybody else. Run prevention coordinator was a brand new job that they invented for Ricky Gutierrez this year. I don't know if they're just suddenly going to have somebody else doing that same job. So is some of this actually an elimination of jobs and a condensing of staffing, which speaks to the financial question, and are they trying to save money here? The bench coach? Are you going outside and getting somebody with a lot of experience who maybe hasn't worked for them before? Or one name to watch, and I don't know the answer to this, but I think it would fit the pattern of what we're seeing elsewhere. Henry Blanco, who was one of Davies' closest confidants, started out as bullpen coach, moved to the dugout a couple of years ago to essentially be their catching coach in the dugout. If he becomes the bench coach and still coaches the catchers, I think it makes sense in a lot of ways. And I'm not saying that's a bad move, but that would be another position eliminated or compressed. Instead of now having a bench coach and a catching coach, you essentially have one person doing both jobs. So I'm very interested to see how that goes. And I do wonder if there's an overarching theme to all of these moves that we're seeing about trimming some fat, eliminating some positions, and condensing all of these roles into fewer roles. We won't really know this until it's all said and done. We see the full roster of the coaching staff and the front office. But there are signs to me that suggest that may be part of this. Yes, we call that downsizing, which is uh, usually a four-letter word in our world. Well, I'll tell you what, if the Nats are looking for a current employee to promote to bench coach, might I suggest Jack McKeon, 92 years old. Could we get Trader Jack next to Davey on a regular basis on Nationals benches in the 2024 season? I would love to see that Trader Jack back in a major league dugout. You may have missed the news. He has officially retired at long last. Oh, that's too bad. Maybe you can get him out of retirement, okay? I want Jack back out there. That would be great. Jack and several of those other longtime special assistants, they put out a, an announcement a week or two ago congratulating them all on their careers. So yet again, positions, we haven't discussed those, but those are positions that would seemingly be no longer part of the organization from some guys who worked for a very long time in baseball. Well, all the best to Trader Jack. Here's all you need to know about Trader Jack McKeon. He was the GM for the 1984 National League champion San Diego Padres. This guy was a GM in 84. It's 2023, and he was still employed by a major league team.
Hey guys, it's Al Galdi here to tell you about another great deal being offered right now by Window Nation to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Window Nation is offering you even more. When it comes to new windows, Window Nation always gives you more, but now Window Nation is giving you even more, more. <laughs> the more windows that you buy, the more that you save up to 50% off, plus a lot more. Pay nothing for two full years. Another amazing deal on the great windows that Window Nation can provide to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Save up to 50% with the purchase of a house of windows. You know, even given what has been happening with interest and mortgage rates, Window Nation still is keeping 0% interest for two years. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the great deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. On deck, Frank Howard. And you can sense the crowd waiting to react again to the big guy. Kobe hits one into short left field. Coming in on the ball is Roy White. He's under it, makes the catch. And before Hondo stands in, let's pause for station identification. This is the Washington Senators Baseball Network. WWDC, AM and FM, Washington. Where'd you get it? At Jack Amatucci Chevy City, where the action is on everything from Vegas to Vets. Jack Amatucci Chevrolet, there is no road in Georgia Avenue in Wheaton. If you can't hear our voice, it's because the gin is tremendous for Hondo. A curve is in for the strike. Hondo crashed his 26th home run. Off the left field wall, his last time up, grounds one foul on the first base side. Steven Strasburg is uh, on the Nats' 40-man roster. This has become quite the dance. What's going to happen here with Strasburg? Look, we all know the deal he's done as a player. It's sad, but, you know, it is the reality. But until the contract gets figured out, this guy is a part of the Nationals organization in terms of being considered a player. And for now, anyway, he's occupying a spot on the Nats' 40-man roster. What do you think is a realistic timeline by which we get the true resolution on this? I mean, this isn't good for anybody. This needs to come to an amicable ending. But boy, is this taking a long time. Yeah. So, you know, let's go back to August when he conceded that his career was over and plans were underway 
for a retirement announcement. And then all of a sudden it fell apart. It wasn't happening anymore. And then we had that bizarre press release and statement from Mark Lerner in which he suggested that we look forward to seeing him at spring training. And we said at the time, there's no chance that Steven Strasburg is going to spring training to attempt to continue to pitch. And I still believe that to be the case. But until there is resolution to this, they are required to keep him on the 40-man roster. So five days after the World Series ends, there is no more IL after that point. Anybody who was on the 60-day IL must now be protected on the 40-man roster. And the Nationals were at 41 going into this with five players on the IL, and Strasburg was one of them. And so now he comes off. Now, that doesn't mean he's healthy. Just because you're off the IL does not mean you're healthy. There just is no IL in the offseason. How does this play out? I don't think anybody really knows anymore. It's kind of this standoff situation until somebody, you know, gives in in some way to whatever it is that they are seeking. All I know is the longer this goes on, the bigger a problem it becomes because those 40-man roster spots are precious in the offseason. Coming up here in the next few weeks, they have to start protecting players from the Rule 5 draft minor leaguers who could be exposed to that, they need to add. So that's spots that are going to have to be cleared for that. Eventually, you are going to want to sign some free agents or make some trades. And those are players who will take up spots on the 40-man roster. Now, they have a handful of guys right now who you wouldn't figure are part of the long-term plan that they could cut ties with if they need to. So there is some ability to do that. But there's going to come a point somewhere along the way when they may want to add somebody, a free agent, and the only player left that makes any sense to drop from the 40-man roster is Steven Strasburg, and they can't do that until they have an agreement between them. That's when it's going to become a real problem. I don't know when that day is going to be. I sure hope it doesn't make it all the way to February, and this is still happening. But for now, I don't get a sense that they're any closer to a resolution on that front. I don't know how you say that Strasburg's camp doesn't have the leverage here, right? I mean, the money is guaranteed. So, you know, as much as the learners love to pay what they can pay today, tomorrow, and as much as the learners, I'm sure, don't like paying all of this money to someone who has given them next to nothing since signing this extension, okay, we're not talking about what he did prior to being re-signed. I don't know what recourse you truly have if you're the learners. You don't have insurance on the contract. It's a mega money contract. The situation is what it is, as the saying goes. I feel like ultimately the learners are going to probably have to bite the bullet if Strasburg and his camp aren't going to take, you know, some sort of settlement of, you know, 80 cents, 70 cents on the dollar or something like that. So I think you're mostly right for that. There is one scenario, and I don't really know exactly how this works because I don't know this is a situation that has ever truly come up, but it is this. If he remains on the 40-man roster all the way through the offseason and even into spring training. I do believe that you have to, as a player, show that you are attempting to continue your rehab and attempting to return to play. You can't stash somebody on the IL for three years and have them sit at home. There may be some kind of point that the Nationals could make that say, if you're not actively trying to return to the field and to play again, while you are on the 40-man roster and on the IL, then you are in breach of contract and now we could recoup some of the money or all of the money, whatever it might be. That might be the one point of leverage that the team has in this case. Like I said, I don't know exactly how this works. It's not a situation that comes up 
Hardly ever, if ever, but I think that might be the one thing. And that's why that line from Mark Lerner back uh, in August or September when the whole thing fell apart stuck with me when he said, you know, until then, we look forward to seeing him at spring training. In my mind, whether he meant it this way or not, in my mind, that was the, okay, if you're not going to retire, then we expect you to continue your rehab because that's the only way you get paid. That was the George Costanza line, let's get nuts. You want to get nuts, let's get nuts. Like, that's what I thought of when Mark Lerner put that line out there. Well, you know, nobody wanted to see the Strasburg situation get ugly. It's too late for that. You know, we've gotten to that point here where we have to talk about this situation in the way that we just talked about it, and it's unfortunate, but uh, I don't know that it's stunning given the amount of money involved. So, Steven Strasburg, of course, 2019 World Series MVP, we will never forget we just had the conclusion of the 2023 World Series. And, you know, look, there are a lot of ways you can go with this, right? The MLB playoff format has come up a bunch. That's like an entirely different episode of the Nats Chat podcast because I think there's so much to get into with that. But here's the bottom line from the Nats perspective 2021, the season in which the Nats cratered, right? 65 and 97. You also had that year the Rangers going 60 and 102 and the Diamondbacks going 52 and 110. And yet here we are, two years later, Rangers and Diamondbacks in the World Series, a World Series, of course, that the Rangers won. Now, put aside that the Rangers were technically a wildcard team, although they finished with the same record as the American League West champion Houston Astros. Put aside the fact that the Diamondbacks were an 84-win team in the 2023 regular season. The Rangers won the American League pennant. The Diamondbacks won the National League pennant. I think if you're a Nats fan and you look at this, regardless of how you feel about the playoff format, this is nothing but supremely encouraging if you're a Nats fan. The case for years, especially in the NHL, has been you don't have to be great to do great because the postseason is so unpredictable and the regular season in the NHL certainly doesn't mean nearly as much as uh, you know hockey wishes that it did. It just doesn't. I'm not saying we're at that point at MLB. But boy, if we're now at a point to where if you have a mid-80s win total, you're in the postseason, a postseason in which anything can happen more than ever before, I think that's great news if you're a Nats fan right now. Yeah, I agree. Now, first of all, I was not a fan of the expanded playoffs adding the extra wildcard team. For that reason, I felt like it still needed to mean something for you to get into the tournament, that you should at least be approaching 90 wins, you know, at least in the upper 80s. To feel like that. And looking back over the last decade or so, I felt like there were not teams that missed the playoffs that you said, boy, they got screwed. They really deserved to be in the playoffs and they didn't make it because there aren't enough teams in it. Now, we know that's not the reason the MLB expanded. They expanded to make more money because it's more games on TV and more money in TV rights to show those games. The byproduct of that is you do leave yourself vulnerable or open to the possibility of what we saw this year, which was an 84-win wildcard team making it to the World Series. Now, I also think the Dimebacks were better than that. They were in first place for a good chunk of the season. They had a lot of good young talent. They kind of cratered at the end, snuck into the playoffs, and then got hot and looked great the rest of the way. But if you're the Nationals, you have to look at this in a different light. A couple of years ago, you would not say that coming off a 71 and 91 season, as the Nationals just did, that you should be even thinking at all about contending for a playoff berth the following year. I do think that changes now the way this goes. 84 wins may not get in next year. Maybe it goes up to 88 if the league is different and the talent dispersal is a little different. But 
I think what we're seeing here is if you are in the range of 500 come July, you're in it. And you probably should approach the trade deadline as a buyer and not a seller. And I think it's entirely reasonable for the Nationals to be in that position next year. Doesn't mean it will happen. Doesn't mean if they don't get there that it's a bad year. We've discussed how the wins and losses still don't necessarily show exactly how far they have come or not come. But I think it has to be on their radar. And not saying that means they need to go out this winter and try to add pieces to become an 85-win team that can make the playoffs and go to the World Series next year. You should not deviate from what your plan is. But I think you have to acknowledge that if all the pieces fall into place, you could find yourself in a position next July that you are in the race and you need to be prepared for that possibility because the last thing anyone around here wants to see is for a Nationals team that's, say, three games out of the wild card on July 31st to say, now nah, we're actually going to sell our one-year rental pieces. We're not going to go all in. We're not going to try to make it. The format, the way it's designed now, I think if they find themselves in that spot, they probably need to make some attempt to actually get into October. Yeah, and that was one of the selling points for the expanded postseason. Hey, more teams will be in contention. More fan bases will be engaged. And when you're trying to sell this thing to the MOBPA, you say, hey, fewer teams will be tanking because you don't have to have a win total in the 90s to end up realistically being a World Series contender. It it is amazing how many 100-win teams these last two years haven't even made it to the league championship series level of the postseason. Now, you know, there's part of me that says, let's give this thing more of a sample size than two years. But man, the early results really do scream. You win 100 games in the regular season. That really doesn't mean much. And uh, (laughs) that is a sobering reality if you are an MLB fan. Well, when it comes to baseball in Washington, D.C., we have such a unique history. When you think about the two incarnations of the Senators, we also, of course, have the Nationals. Uh, We, of course, had the Homestead Grays. There's so much to think about. There's so much history to baseball in Washington, D.C. If I asked you, well, who is the greatest pitcher in Washington baseball history? The answer has to be Walter Johnson. I don't know how you say anyone else. I mean, Max Scherzer was awesome here, but I don't think you're putting Max on the level of Walter Johnson, who just might be the best pitcher in baseball history, period. But if I ask you who is the best hitter in the history of Washington baseball, I think that that's a more debatable topic and a leading contender for that honor would be the great Frank Howard, the former Washington Senators outfielder and first baseman. We found out now a few Mondays ago, October 30th, that he had passed. Uh, Frank Howard was 87. He had the nickname of Hondo. He played for the Senators 1965 through 1971. They, of course, became the Texas Rangers in 1972. Frank Howard, over his time as a Senators player, four consecutive regular seasons, each with at least 36 home runs, 1967 through 1970. Now, On the surface, that may sound good, but geez, is that really worthy of being called the best hitter in Washington baseball history? Well, remember the era that we're talking about, right? Late 60s, early 70s, a time of the pitcher. 1968, the year of the pitcher. If you go sabermetrics, Frank Howard, 1968 through 1970, had an OPS plus of at least 170 for each regular season. OPS plus OPS that's adjusted for a player's league at home ballpark, 100 is average. The beauty of it is that it normalizes everything regardless of the era in which you're in. So you can compare someone from 1968 to say, you know, a steroid year like 1999 or 2000. 100 is average, above 100 is good. 120, 130 is really good. 150 is like MVP good. 170 is sensational. Frank Howard in each of three consecutive 
regular seasons, had an OPS plus of 170, 68 through 70. What a career this guy ended up having. You know, to me, Mark, there was something very appropriate about the announcement of Frank Howard's death happening on October 30th, 2023, four years to the day of the Nats winning the 2019 World Series. Regardless of where you put Frank Howard in Washington baseball history, he certainly is a really key figure. He, in a lot of ways, was like this mythical figure because he was so big, but everyone who came across him says such good things about him as a person, a tremendous career, a tremendous life, and uh, it was sad to hear about his passing. There's a reason there's a statue of him in center field as soon as the ballpark opened. That's what he meant to this organization. And a lot of different thoughts that I, I want to share here, but uh, the thing that stuck out to me as I was writing his obituary, and I, I think I knew this, but until you really put it all together, you don't quite grasp the significance of this. The guy spent more than four decades in Major League Baseball as a player and coach. He had a very long coaching and even managerial career for a couple of years. And in that time, worked for a dozen different organizations or played for all those. And he spent seven years in Washington, D.C. And yet there is nobody, including Frank himself, who wouldn't have said which franchise do you associate him with? It was Washington. And so even though it was a small fraction of his whole baseball life, the Senators and DC in general is what embraced him and he embraced us. And that's why all those years later, he would come to RFK Stadium and to Nationals Park and feel like he was a part of the Nationals organization. There's a reason the Nationals made the announcement of his passing, not the Texas Rangers, who technically is the franchise that he most played for. He was there on opening night at RFK in 05, and in what I still believe is maybe you know, on the short list of greatest moments in Nationals history because it connected generations. When the 2005 starting lineup took the field, they were greeted at their positions by every member of the last Senators team from 1971 who handed over their gloves to them in this ceremonial handing down from one generation of Washington baseball to the next. And there was Frank Howard at six foot seven in left field handing Brad Wilkerson his glove. And Wilkerson at that time was probably the best known and best player on the initial Nationals team. And I've heard from so many people who were there that night, people who grew up idolizing Frank Howard and waited 33 years for baseball to return, now getting to experience that moment with their children. And so there was a passing down from generations going on in the stands, just like there was on the field that night. He was a mythical figure, I think, for so many people of a certain age in this area. The numbers, as you said, were fantastic at a time when nobody was doing that. To hit 40 home runs the way that he did, and drew a lot of walks too. He was a little ahead of his time in that regard. He struck out a ton, kind of like the Adam Dunn maybe or Kyle Schwarber of his time. But I think in the late 60s, early 70s, he was a fearsome hitter who was well-respected throughout the game. And, and I experienced it a handful of times that I met him over the years when he came to the ballpark, a truly gentle giant who did not convey at all that he was this hulking six foot seven behemoth. Talked to so many fans who had the same interactions. Anytime they would see him, didn't just sign his autograph, but wanted to get into a conversation with them and make them feel like they were important to him. And it's why, despite it just being a short portion of his life that he spent playing in Washington, D.C., I think he's right up there with any Washington baseball icon and really any 
Washington sports icon because of what he meant to so many people around here. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on X at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show to Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. We certainly welcome your memories of Frank Howard, your thoughts on Frank Howard. Is he, in fact, the best hitter in the history of Washington, D.C. baseball? We invite you to check out our website as well, NatsChatPodcast.com, at which you can buy a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. We'll be with you throughout the Nats offseason as developments warrant. But, you know, every few weeks, so we'll be hitting you with a new installment of the podcast. We, of course, have the winter meetings coming up in a few weeks. And who knows what else might happen? Who knows what other hirings and firings might be taking place <laughs> with the Nationals organization? So for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. Frank Howard was a product of Ohio State. Tim Shovers is a massive Wisconsin fan. But Tim and Frank put aside their Big Ten loyalties to have this conversation in November 2019, you're going to hear Frank Howard talking to Tim about Frank being recognized on the field before Game 4 of the 2019 World Series in Washington, D.C. We thank you for listening. Enjoy this clip of Frank, and uh, rest in peace to the great Frank Howard. Frank Oliver Hondo Howard is one of the greatest players in Washington professional baseball history. Posing slugger at the plate, he was the most feared hitter in the Washington Senators' lineups from 1965 to 1971, part of a brilliant 16-year playing career. When somebody says, hey, why don't you come down and say hello? Uh, why don't you come down and enjoy the game? And it was, it was a great invitation, one that I cherished. You know, I talked to the Lerner family, and I said, you know... Uh, You've been waiting a long, long time. We all have been waiting a long, long time. I said, now, with this America, we play to win. We don't play to lose. But win, lose, or draw, enjoy the moment. Senators trail 5-1. to one. But they have time to catch the Yankees. There's a long drive to the field. This one is going, going. It is gone. Frank Howard has just hit. 26, and again, he gets a standing ovation. And the cheer for Hondo, who waved his batting helmet to the fans.